Well, happy Friday, everyone. This is Matt Gurney for The Line on behalf of Jen Gerson. This is the eighth episode of our experimental podcast series, and I really don't know at what point it will stop being experimental. One week, maybe I will just stop mentioning it. So this week, we put out on Friday afternoon a special dispatch written to all of our subscribers, uh, free or paid, it was not paywalled, to talk about the Ontario election. Later that day, we got back together and we came up with a dispatch plan for a dispatch written again uh, that will be sorted out for paid and non-paying subscribers that talks about everything else. So Ontario first, everything else later. There is no Ontario-centric podcast or video. We might do something with that next week, but for now, here is the Dispatch podcast for everything except Ontario, except, of course, when we actually do talk about the Ontario stuff. Welcome back, line, video, podcast, etc. for what, whatever week this is. So Jen, you and I have already put out a full dispatch already. We did a open to everybody, no paywall uh, dispatch for the Ontario election. We're, we're keeners. Not, yeah, we were. We are keeners. And now we're going to do one that's not Ontario related. Is this why people hate us? Because we're keeners? People hate, us, people hate us for a lot of reasons. There's oh, no that's reason. fair. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, all right. Um, we will probably tangentially touch on some Ontario stuff in this, but we've already had our say in the, the first one. So if you're here expecting a ton of Ontario commentary, go read what we wrote online. That's it's not like it's not like you're lacking content on yeah. the Ontario election. So exactly. there you go. I'm not feeling bad for you. So I want to I want to start on guns, and I want to just do two again. Quick here. You and the guns. You, me and the guns. I want to do two quickies here, um, and we'll move on from this. So we were talking in our last dispatch a week ago about how only America could fix itself, but it won't. That the problem in the United States is not guns, and people think it's guns, but it's not. It's politics. The Republicans are th so thoroughly captured by part of their base, they can't save themselves. They can't fix themselves. I forget the guy's name right now. I'll, I'll pull it up when we're writing the blurbs. Some Republican congressman in the United States after Buffalo and after uh, Texas had said it was time for some like reasonable, benign, ba like base level gun control in the U.S. Like and the he kind was of policies that the Republicans would have been behind in 1980. Yeah. And the kind of policies that Canadian conservatives would still be behind. And yes. he said he was willing to take on the political risk. And today he announced he's leaving politics because it's become clear to him he cannot function as a member of the Republican Party having taken that stand. So I'm not going to belabor it in a, in a dispatch blur, but I want to just mention that this is what we're talking about. Dude in a northern state makes a reasonable proposal and it kills his political career. This is why the politics have to be fixed before the guns. I want that being to said, I think that if we're going to talk, if you want to talk about guns from here on out, uh, Matt, you should be doing it holding a literal gun. So from now on, like, I want you, like, as if this were some kind of terrorist video to hold your guns in the background and 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 do that in the future. Because personally, I just think it would be good for visuals. And, and too, I do think that there would be an audience that would appreciate it. Yeah, but I don't know if that's the audience we want to be cultivating. Like, no, okay, would, well, that's it would, fair. It would make this a very different YouTube channel. I could it, grab it, one of my it would get us attention. It would, it would get us attention. That's all I'm saying. Man, give me one second. All right. All right, here we go. Yeah, I knew there'd be one nearby because my son never cleans up properly. Perfect. How about a Nerf dino gun? We'll do. We'll yeah, work. Okay. Um, 
the other thing i want to say on guns is that uh this week i already wrote a column about this that went live tuesday um when i when i wrote the column about trudeau's gun control announcement on uh on tuesday i noted in the column that there was some ambiguity in the law and that there was something that didn't make sense and i, I think i said explicitly in the column i'm not going to dwell on this now because we need to wait for more information i don't think the liberals how many times have i said jen that gun control is complicated there's a lot of technical terminology i think the liberals fucked up and what i mean is that i don't think the liberals when they rolled out their proposal understood the difference between a detachable magazine and an internal magazine and let, let me explain this and i'll do this in a way that uh, even the listeners who are not fluent in gun stuff will understand so you you've seen movies right like you know a, a guy runs out of bullets so he there's like a yes, metal well, there's like a metal box that he detaches from the gun and he slaps in a new one that has ammunition in it, right? Yeah. That's the magazine. And that's considered a detachable magazine because you can take it out of the gun. It's the fastest way to reload a gun. You've got a magazine preloaded with however many rounds it can hold. When one's empty, boom, you drop it, you snap in another one, you're ready to go. For safety reasons, to slow down a mass shooter, Canadian law limits magazines, uh, detachable magazines, to five rounds. There are a couple of guns that are sort of grandfathered in because they were designed with like an eight-round magazine. Some guns use uh, magazines that are uh, interchangeable between rifles and pistols, blah, blah, blah. But in general, the Canadian law for a detachable magazine is five rounds. And the legislation that the Liberals proposed on Monday repeats that but they didn't specify detachable magazine. And the reason I think this is a fuck up is because most firearm, every firearm has a magazine. Most of them are internal and most hunting rifles or shotguns have an internal tube or a little like area of the gun where you pop in the rounds. The overwhelming number of shotguns and hunting rifles in this country will have internal magazines that exceed five rounds. So either... The Liberals have just, in one fell swoop, announced their intention to ban virtually all shotguns and rifles in this country, including the non-restricted ones that they go out of their way to say they aren't coming after, or they fucked up. And so you're telling me that the Liberals maybe don't know what the fuck they're doing on gun control? I have. I, wow. That is, that is what That's I'm telling you. Just let me put my cup on my head and look surprised. This is something they could fix with one statement to the press and clarify what their meaning is. And either be clear, they're coming for the guns or they only mean detachable magazines. And how hard would that be? Any emailed reporter going, you know, hi, Matt. Hi, Jen. Hi, whomever. Yeah, just to clarify the minister's remarks, he was referring to detachable magazines, and this will be clear in the legislation. Have a wonderful weekend. Sign the Public Safety Ministry comms department, right? Boom. Done. They made the announcement Monday. It's Friday. Have you sent them asking to clarify? No, I haven't. Um, but uh, other reporters have, and then, and I've just been watching their like despairing tweets about not getting answers. Oh, okay, great. So, Super. So we'll find out. So we'll find either out. either Mr. Trudeau is indeed coming for your hunting rifle, or he fucked up and hasn't figured out yet how to admit it. So, I, I think I think that maybe they just don't even understand that they fucked up yet. That's, they just don't they don't know the difference. I, I agree. And they're yeah. regulating something that they literally so know little know so little about that they don't know the technical ins and outs of it. 
Correct. So yeah. I, I, sorry, I just put my son's Nerf gun down. I will do a little medley. Um, little medley. On, on guns. Little gun medley. Little medley of guns. Um, um, so do you want to talk about, um, I'm just saying, we've got a few things to tick off the list here. Why don't you do vaccine mandates? Because you okay, have interesting so, Yeah, so so basically, uh, uh, I think that this is something that um, uh, we've been poking around the edges of in terms of doing for a dispatch. Uh, but I, you know, and some we have some people on Twitter and some some of our comment commenters underneath our dispatches making this point. Like they just really, really hate the vaccine uh, mandates for travel. Um, now, of course, the international vaccine mandates Canada doesn't control really. Uh, but in terms of um, vaccine mandates to travel domestically, there are just a lot of people who really, really hate these these things. I think that they're an unreasonable impingement, and I think that we are now in the point in the pandemic where I agree with them. I think that uh, COVID rates have stabilized. We've seen studies coming out of the UK showing that the antibody rate among the general population is like 99.3%, which means that even the people who either you've been vaccinated or you've got COVID at this point. And so barring some kind of ridiculous mutant variant, which could happen, absolutely could happen, but barring that, we're, we're as over COVID as we are likely to be at this point. And the vaccine mandates are not forcing anyone else to get vaccinated. They're just, you know, at arguably, at arguably at this point, we are so fast, far past the, the, the realm of diminishing returns that it doesn't make sense to continue to continue them as anything other than a divisive punitive measure. Yep. Now, so I mean, I kind of am bored with, I think that we've reached the threshold where we should be dropping these things. Other countries have dropped them. Um, and it makes rational scientific sense for me to drop them apart from whatever partisan uh, attachments that, th that these might have. And I, in fact, I think we even, we've touched on this before. Yeah. We've touched a little bit on this before. So I think, I think that's there, but Laura Mitchell, who's written for us a couple of times before was talking to me about this and she made a really excellent point that I hadn't thought of. So I'm going to give her due credit for this. And she said, I bet you they're not dropping them because they want to discourage people from traveling because the logistics for, for of our entire travel infrastructure is such a mess. Oh, because the airports are clusterfucked. The airports yeah. are clusterfucks. <laughs> They're so bad that the airports themselves have literally begged the federal government to drop COVID measures. Mm -hmm. um, going through Pearson, especially internationally, has been nothing but like anecdote after anecdote demonstrates that they're a nightmare. And also the passport offices are a mess. If you haven't traveled for the last two years and your passport's expired and all of a sudden you want to go down to Mexico, everybody's hitting those passport offices at the same time. And I'm hearing anecdotes of people being like, you're not going to get your passport renewal for months. Good I luck. I saw on Twitter just a couple of days ago, John Kay saying he drove from home in Toronto, I think it was to Windsor, which is about a four hour drive because he needed a passport urgently. And he heard that the Windsor office was in better shape than the Toronto one. Yeah. So an eight hour round trip to get a passport. Look, I... I, a couple of points to make. First of all, Laura's, uh, Laura's theory is cynical and it presumes a craven degree of selfish uh, self-prioritization among our, our federal government, which makes me convinced it's probably accurate. <laughs> it's probably accurate. Um, so like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's true, but I do think it is worth a, making the argument that, that the mandates actually don't stand up anymore. They don't, they're, not, they're no longer rational measures. And you know they do represent an unreasonable impingement upon travel domestically for people, and that's that's probably not fair. Um, but I also think it's worth pointing out. It's like, is there another reason why these are standing up? Like, is there another reason why these why? Because well, I mean, we know that the mandates are broad among the, the, the general public; they're popular, right? They poll well. Um, but you know, if they poll well, if this policy polls well, and it keeps you know fifteen percent of the population from rushing to the passport office, that's already crammed and overbooked. Yeah. 
Yeah, see, I, I'm cynical in my own way about this. I, I don't know if Laura is right or not, but it is interesting to think about. What An I interesting would, theory. What I would say, and you and I have touched about this, I've written columns about this, and I think you might have as well. There's going to be one hell of an unwinding process from COVID. You know, even if, even if COVID was, were vanished tomorrow, we would have lingering public health orders and uh, mass restrictions and things like that for a long, long time. Because governments, first of all, A, are slow to unwind stuff, even if they see no harm in unwinding it. B, these have become politicized. These yes. have become wedges. And there would be a real reluctance to unwind them. And I, I think, you know, one of the things, uh, I don't know if we included this in a dispatch or if I just talked with you about this a couple of weeks ago. So Toronto's state of emergency expired a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me when it did that we are lucky it, it only operated for set periods, right? Because it's one thing for a politician to go, hey, look, it was expiring and we didn't see the cause to renew it. It's a very different thing for them to basically go, oh, shit, we should probably revoke this thing but if we do we're gonna get yelled at yeah it's why sunset bit. clauses are actually yes. really important and it was actually one of the one of the my big concerns and fears with 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 a lot of the mandates yeah. and the vaccine passports and things like that we didn't have was like any. was that they didn't have sunset clauses yeah like that was actually one of my major major concerns and, and issues with them i would have been much more gung-ho on on a lot of these passports if the government said right out that these are going to be, you know, these are going to Unlimited. expire at the end of six months. And if we want to renew them after six months, we'll, we'll, we'll renew them in six, six months. months. But they didn't have sunset clauses. And these yeah. things had become horrendously politicized. Yeah. So that was my concern with a lot of them. Now, as it turns out, you know, by as of June 2020, you know, for the most part, life's back to normal, except for these travel um, mandates, you know, we're... we're it's we haven't instituted yes. whatever anyway like <laughs> the last few years didn't happen i mean we haven't implemented some kind of wef backed uh, dystopian um big brother state uh you know in alberta they dropped those uh vaccine passports like like a bad habit like as soon yep. as they possibly could i don't they still don't have them in toronto now like uh, like they're gone. You have to wear you have to wear a mask on the TDC. You got to wear a mask a on the TDC facility. in a medical facility. Okay, fine. Like uh, you know, but but like like I like you said, we're, we're like ninety percent back to normal now. I'm like it's fine. I'm ninety nine percent back to normal. The only thing that I have to worry about is when I'm hopping a bus. Uh, do I have a mask? In my do you have a mask on? I remember when I was in Toronto a couple weeks ago. I was I was uh, I had to remember to wear a mask or, yeah. or bring a mask. You bring know, but I mean, like my life, my life here in Calgary is ninety nine percent back to normal. Same. I honestly don't even see many people wearing masks except for like elderly people who are going shopping. In which case, I'm like, hey man, you do you. Yep. So like, I, I, you know, a lot of the fear about mandate mandates and vax, um, vaccine passports didn't really coalesce or materialize. Um, some of them did. Uh, so I think it's, 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 it's worthwhile, you know, with a little bit of distance looking back and saying, okay, what about that policy made sense and what about it didn't? And I think it's also worth arguing that like these mandates, the vaccine mandates for domestic travel really don't make sense anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, and this feeds into one of my little um, bugaboos, which is everything should be indexed to inflation and everything should have a sunset clause. Because mm -hmm. you, you can't count on political courage and good judgment. In fact, I would yeah. say you almost have to assume the opposite. Yeah. So everything should expire and everything should be indexed to inflation and population growth. Like how often have we had politicians not giving themselves a raise for 15 years because they're cowards and then having to give themselves like a 40% raise to catch up and then getting. That hasn't been black. my experience, but, <laughs> but I mean, also you would say things like things like uh, you should just bake into legislation, things like 24 Sussex gets its sort of uh, 
decennial annual, annual maintenance yeah. to decennial renovation kind of thing like we have you should to just bake that into legislation our politicians are cowards yeah and our politicians have to accept they're cowards and the people that succeed them are likely to be cowards and they should plan around that yep. i have one big thing to throw at you but we're racing a deadline today why don't you do what you were hearing about uh the federal conservative campaign yeah, so of course the uh, cutoff for memberships, I believe it's either today or tomorrow. So the- uh, uh, Friday, it was Friday. Friday, it's Friday, it's today, okay. So the, the they have the federal, sorry, the federal leadership um, candidates have now lost their ability to, well, not lost their ability, they, they've, they've uh, finished their ability to bring up new, new members. And of course we know with leadership raises, 90% of it really is um, membership drives, right? It's who can, who can convince the most people to buy a membership and then get those people to show up to vote. Uh, it's a huge part of the component of just how you do the math of a race, which has its own problems. And I've written about that in the past about why that's actually a really bad system. But let's put that aside. Uh, Friday was the cutoff. And just sort of what I'm hearing and what just judging from the sort of triumphalism that's coming out of the Jean um camp, it does sound like Pierre Polyev does not have the memberships that he would need to win on a first ballot, which means that we're going to be going probably second to maybe third ballots. And it means that the people at the bottom of the ballots and their supporters are, are going off. to are going yep. to drop off and who are they going to support after the after that and that makes the race a much much more interesting one uh i think the general consensus was that pierre needed to win on the first ballot to win decisively and if it went to second or third things could get really messy the, so the Chiray guys have been talking pretty openly about that they have a second or third uh round plan and that hmm. the the key step has got to be surviving the first round and if polyev wins it on the first round he already has caucus lined up if it's it done. goes if it goes beyond two or three then i would if anything i would say polyev as the front runner starts getting vulnerable because people often shift their supports away from the front runner if only, I, I think it's human instinct fuck the front runner right well, so and not, not only that but i mean polyev's not really courted the other candidates nor their members in fact it's been very much it's a little scorched earthy yeah, it's, he's been he's run a scorched earth campaign. So, and that's a front runners campaign. That's and that's a front runners campaign who expects to win on round one, and probably doesn't have a very good round, um, a second round or third round ballot plan. So that is worth noting. I don't think it's worth putting too much time or time or energy into it, but it's it's definitely worth paying attention to. Let you so you'll do that. You'll do vax mandates. I'll do a little gun medley, and I wanted to throw this at you. Mm -hmm. This is something I haven't decided yet if this is a dispatch blurb or if it's a column. Uh, okay. I will tell you that it is probably going to make interesting enough chat. So we can talk about it here on, on the video and on the podcast. You and I are known to like a good chat. Yeah, we like to chew it out. I've had an interesting experience this week. And okay. so columnists, uh, let me explain this to the viewers and the listeners, but you'll know this. A big part of the job is just when like two random things that are floating around in your brain connect in a new way. And that's a column. Mm. Mm. It's so in order to actually write a lot, you need to read a lot and you need to be pumping information into your brain. And then the writer's individual experience and personality and worldview will sort of slam it together into new forms. And then boom, you have a column. Not everyone can do this. Some of us can do it at a pretty astonishing rate. It mileage varies. I want to lay out five things that collided in my brain this week. Ooh. And you tell me, well, and let me let me just tell you what they are. Earlier in the week, I've already had my say on this. The Trudeau government announced sweeping new gun control measures that, as I have explained here at the line, I don't think addressed the real problem. This is a purely political move for political reasons 
Number two on the list, former finance minister Bill Morneau gave a speech to the C.D. Howe Institute this week. One of the things uh, he talked about at some length was how this is a government that lost interest in making Canada more prosperous, lost interest in Canada, or maybe never had interest in growing our productivity. It was all about chasing short-term political wins, right? No one wanted to talk about long-term growth, according to Bill Morneau. It was always about whatever is going to win the next news cycle, even if it wasn't important. Bill Morneau following in the tradition of liberal cabinet ministers everywhere of rediscovering their brain the moment they leave public life. <laughs> Third thing on my list, conversation earlier in the week with Ian Lee. He's a professor at Carleton University, uh, business, international trade, economics, etc. He and I were talking because he's a regular appearance on my radio show on Sirius XM. And we're always emailing back and forth ideas. What should we talk about this week? I've been doing radio stuff with Ian a long time. So we go yeah. back a, a long way. The F word keeps coming up. Not the, the one I've already used a bunch of times earlier in the podcast. Famine. Not in North America. No. Uh, but even our agricultural yields are probably going to be down this year because of drought in Western Canada and also the huge input, input costs of uh, and oil and fertilizers right now yep look at other countries india being an example suspending exports of food ukraine disrupted by war russia bottlenecked by um sanctions and and travel restrictions this has also just been put on everybody's um uh, radar because the economist just did a big front page cover on on the fact that like literally it was wheat sheaves with skulls on it <laughs> like we a, a, a considerable part of the world's going to start running out of food and when that happens, it will be a geopolitical uh, destabilizer. Governments will fall when they can't feed their populations anymore. Mm -hmm. So that was item three. Item four, did you read Paul Wells' long essay earlier in the week? I, I, oh, I meant to. We're like, the line editors signed up for that, aren't we? You've subscribed to this. Yeah, no, we're signed up. Um, but it probably comes to my email, not yours. Yeah, it doesn't come to my email. I'll I'll have it sent to you. Um, I keep on meaning to because I, I, I we my only Substack account is the line editor account, so I can't sign up oh, to someone else's Substack yeah, unless okay. I create a new line. You know, so it's just a uh, no. I have one under my own name, so I will okay. I will send it to you. But thank you. Basically, it's a brilliant essay, and I want to give a shout out to Paul, who's a friend of ours. Like we should disclose that you should subscribe to Paul's Substack. But I read it, and I thought to myself this is a pretty thorough encapsulation of our political failures right now. This is a pretty damning indictment of how our government can't get things done. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul wrote a long essay, it, but it fits very much into my broad thesis that I've told you about many times before. Our politics are decoupled from governance now. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's a game. Politics is a game. The parties compete against each other. Every few years we have an election and we figured out who won the previous round, but none of the actual issues addressing the country are addressed. The next and the, the final item on my list, my item of five things, Nick Nanos, the, the pollster, he was on my radio show this week and we were talking on election day and we agreed not to talk about things in a partisan way because you know we don't want to influence people on voting day it's 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 bad on, on voting day you let people decide yeah. but i asked him kind of what the national mood was and what the ontario mood was and he talked about a growing frustration among the electorate because they see real problems they see real issues and they don't see the political system even trying to address them 
And I thought to myself, holy shit, all five of these, if you connect these dots, it's a line. It is just like a completely flat line, a liberal gun control policy that doesn't tackle gun crime, but it's good for politics. We've got uh, Bill Morneau coming out and saying explicitly, we weren't doing what we were supposed to do because we were focused on winning the news cycle. We've got famine that we're not talking about in this country. And earlier in this week, conservatives were complaining about like trade policies in Canada that are making it harder for us to export our food. Our trade policies in this country have made it harder to export our energy and people are going to starve to death all around the world because we can't get serious about what the actual issues are. We have Paul Wells in this long essay, everybody go out and subscribe so you can read it, eviscerating the government for its manifest inability to focus on issues instead of winning the next day's social media news cycle. We've got Nick Nanos telling me that his polling is capturing a real discontent in the population, which is exactly what John Wright, our buddy, who's currently on vacation in Europe, the lucky bastard, that's what he was telling us months ago, that the population is angry. And I think to myself, are we in a state right now? And this is where our, this is pretty much the only Ontario election content I'm going to throw at you right now. Turnout was low. 43% turnout as of now. It's, there's still a few ballots to come in, but that's really low turnout. And people are always get depressed about it. It's like, oh, well, the media didn't cover the campaign, right? Or all the options sucked. My primary theory is fatigue. After two years of living through hell, no one gave a shit about an Ontario provincial election. What about this theory, though? Try this one on. Is an increasing percentage of the population concluding correctly that our politics is so dysfunctional, it actually doesn't matter. Because, you know, like, the cliche has always been every vote matters. You don't get to have a say unless you come out at the election. You can't give in to apathy. Is the logical, correct conclusion right now actually in our politics that your vote doesn't matter? Because none of these parties are proposing serious governance. They're all just competing in the political meme wars. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably true or close to true. I wouldn't necessarily peg the Ontario election as an example of that, because I do think that essentially the PCs ran a very strategic uh, campaign to not, not drive lower voter turnout, but they ran a, a very purposefully boring campaign, a non-controversial campaign in which Doug Ford was not very present and focused on very boring issues like highways and, you know, some housing stuff. You know, and uh, they, 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 they didn't engage people very purposefully because they knew that a low voter turnout and low engagement would favor the would incumbent yep. and it would help them. And the liberals and the NDP were unable to get over that hump. That's actually what I think it was. I do think that it was strategically purposeful. You may have, I think that, you know, the next federal election, if it's Pierre at the helm, I think you're going to have a high engagement campaign. Um, and that's just going to be because the, the interests involved are going to have an interest in making it and, and, the, and the capacity to make it more interesting and get people involved. So um, I wouldn't peg any particular outcome, any single outcome to this, but I do think your thesis is broadly correct, but I don't think it's a dispatch. I think that's a column. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a column. There's too much there. Probably, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. I don't know if I can make that work in a 500-word dispatch no, blurb. I might need a 1,500-word column. And on that note, considering I've only got 15 more minutes left to uh, chat, I really want to blow through the next two things. One is uh, former Ottawa Police Chief uh, Slowly. What's his first name again? David Slowly. 
David Slowly. No, no, sorry, Peter Slowly. Peter, Peter Slowly. Slowly. See, I'm not an idiot. Peter Slowly basically can um, uh, testify today about the use of the Emergencies Act and said, nope, wasn't me that called for it. Yeah. Wasn't anybody I know who called for it. That is a pretty damning bit of testimony because, I mean, back when we were covering this, you know, we were taking Slowly's warnings about the element that was being attracted yeah. to that convoy very, very seriously. You know, Slowly was being very blunt about saying, this is beyond my capacity yeah. to handle. So for Sully to now come out and say, yeah, but I didn't mean, call, you know, call the emergencies act. Like yeah. I just needed more support. Um, that is a very, very damning point against the government's decision to go nuclear on this one. Um, and I think that's worth noting. I think a plane uh, just flew over my house. Oh, <laughs> that's what? odd, but okay. Um, just flew over your house? A plane, I think, which shouldn't shouldn't happen but something very loud just went over my house uh probably nothing to worry about um you know what i mean slowly said this week that he needed 1800 more more officers that was the ask and it took weeks to get them yeah that he never asked for the emergencies act and the reason we bring this up is because the federal government has said the reason they invoked the emergencies act was because police told them they needed it so they've said that uh the interim chief of the ottawa police and now the former chief have said we didn't ask for it did the RCMP ask for it? I think I'd have to check this. I think the RCMP is denied asking for yeah, it. Yeah, no, here. they denied it. They denied asking for it. And and I don't maybe think the OPP need, did. I don't know. You don't you don't need to invoke the Emergencies Act to move officers around. No, you don't. That's just you just say, hey, Paul, get in the back of the truck. Like it's not, it's not something that requires some special authorization. It's just it just doesn't. So um yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a bad sign. That's a bad tone, sign. Our tone at the beginning. I was in Ottawa. I was very alarmed by the situation. I thought it was a big deal. I still think it was a big deal. I think there is sort of a degree of hindsight whitewashing seeping in where we're now far enough away that we're like, oh, that wasn't a big deal. No, in February, it was a big deal. It was. It was. That and was I think that we should go back and get the quotes from Slowly back in February where he was just yeah. like, I'm drowning, yeah. you know? But and I think... Um, at the time when the emergencies act was declared our immediate reaction at the line was we're open-minded to this but we're skeptical because and we I, have yet we have yet to see even then we were saying okay maybe the government knows something we don't but we don't yet, see any reason well, why they need the emergencies act and, I and also like there's been no evidence Nope. to demonstrate that like like i think that you and i are both on on board with the fact that there were probably some really dark elements in that crowd mm -hmm. you know that there was that there were there was a handful of people and maybe even a couple dozen people just like there was at the blockade at coots who, yep. who were clearly looking for some trouble like I, I don't think there's any dispute about that but the idea that the convoy represented some kind of existential threat to the country i that's a that's a a big stretch or the idea that like this couldn't have been handled through ordinary law enforcement means with just more support or more backup we're not seeing a lot of evidence to demonstrate that no, and look, not. the emergencies act is clear in order to invoke a public order emergency the scope of the emergency must be beyond the ability for normal laws to handle Yes. Like the Emergencies Act is explicit about this. I mean, the, for public order emergencies, there are war emergencies and international crises sure. and, and natural disaster emergencies. But to declare a public order emergency, it is necessary for the crisis to have outstripped normal law enforcement 
to respond. Yes. I'm, I'm still not, I'm not saying it. that was the case. I'm not saying and it. I, like, I wasn't like, then and I'm not now. Yeah. It's, we're just not seeing the evidence of that. We're just not um, like if you had a situation where you had, you know, God forbid, you know, multiple terrorist attacks and a, an uprising and a coup and a general strike going on at the same time across 18 cities in the country, you would have no problems invoking the emergencies act. That's clearly over the line. A blockade of a couple of bridges that could be cleared with a court order and a blockade of the of, of downtown Ottawa that could again have been cleared with, as we saw with just some extra police support. You don't like we just didn't need to invoke the nuclear action to make or the nuclear option to make that happen. Like it's just anyway, the evidence has not been forthcoming. And I think that it's worthwhile to, to pay attention to that. Agreed. The last thing that, that uh, uh, we wanted to chat about was Bill 96. Quebec. Uh, Quebec. Quebec is basically increasing, like Quebec's a nation in all but name at this point. It's a, it's, a, it's an independent country in all but name and they still use the money. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's... If you were Canada, to tell the separatists of the 90s that this was going to be Quebec in 2022, they'd been like, well, it's pretty much everything we've asked for. Canada is a fairly closely knit federation with the exception of one. Yeah. Like we are, we are a loose federation with Quebec and a reasonably close federation for everyone else. Yeah. So anyway, they're putting hey, Bill works. 96. Well, they're passing Bill 96 that is going to, that, you know, it harkens back to the Bill 101 language laws of your, and I think that the, what the bill is going to do is essentially make it mandatory for everyone to use French with the I exception of, of a very, pardon, with the exception yeah, of a. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, and with so, extraordinary search powers to make sure no one sent a work email in English. Yeah, like it's 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 out there. It's crazy. um, it's pretty crazy stuff. Uh, you know, any ordinary society in any ordinary situation would not tolerate this level of sort of government. Just plain government interference. It's just not. Um, however, I've got a bit of a of an of, a, of an alternative take, and that is, if Quebec can get away with these kinds of anti-civil libertarian type laws, and I would add Bill 21 to it, you know, fine. You want to force everybody in your in your jurisdiction to um, uh, use French and you want to be very heavy handed about it. And there's our federal government, of course, is going to be too chicken shit to, to, to stop you or, or stand in your way in any way, because of course it is. That's fine. But then the rest of us get to give up the pretense of being by bilingual. Just make sure my kids graduate from French immersion. Well, there you go. You can choose to graduate from French French immersion, but we get rid of the federal service requirements around bilingualism. Yeah, yep. that's gone. You know, if you get to force your people to use French, then we get to set our own standards in the rest of the country. Well, and yeah, and yeah, that should be decided. And that should be decided at, at at the provincial level. So maybe in New Brunswick is a different kind of vibe. That's fine, but you know, you can't you cannot privilege bilingualism in a country that is unequally favoring one language over the other. Well, like, that's not I'll bilingualism say, anymore. What I will say is simply this, and I was talking with a, um, a well-known uh, Quebecer a few days ago about this, someone who is, is a Quebecer, a Francophone, um, and uh, has worked a lot in English, so is, is well-known. And I, I just said to him, People always think if there's going to be Canadian fascism, it's going to come out of Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's going to be some rural Oath Keepers thing. Canadian far-right ethno-linguistic nationalism, aka something very close to fascism, it's not going to come out of Alberta. It's going to come out of Quebec. And if it was coming out of Alberta, our Laurentian elites would have no problem using the Emergencies Act to stomp it out. 
coming out of Quebec. They're terrified to even they, they pretend they don't see it because to notice it is politically awkward. Yep. I, you know what? I I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know what Quebec's going to do, but I mean, Quebec is uh, the government of Quebec is deliberately using language issues to beat a minority over the head because it looks good in the polls. It is barbaric cultural practices, except it's yep. working and no one cares. Yep. And for some reason, Quebec gets passed for doing this shit. It always oh, has and, and always will. We know what the reason is. The, the liberal power base is yeah, based there and the conservatives are always hoping to win there. None of them. Now, that being said, to, to what extent is the liberal power base, which is which is pretty English, uh, going to continue to tolerate that? I think to a sufficient extent, but to a sufficient extent is probably <laughs> yeah. going to be the answer. So like, as, as I said, I just, you know, fine. You want to engage in these kinds of jackbooted type policies against your people. All right. But then I don't think that we should be playing the huggy touchy feely bilingual United Federated Canada game anymore because we're not, we're just not. What I think needs to happen is there needs to be an honest to God Montreal separation movement. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like Montreal yeah. and, and other parts of Quebec that would prefer to remain aligned with Canada need to basically start saying, we've had enough. We want to join Ontario. Or, what, or in what, Montreal's what, case, or, or, or what, will happen, what will happen exactly the same thing that happened during the referendum is that if you're an Anglo in, in Quebec, you just leave. Because you just can't do it anymore. Which is, which is, which, which, I mean, hobbled that province for 20 years. Well, longer than that. Terrible. They're only really starting to fix some of it now. True. But yeah. So anyway. I mean, Anyway, it is what it is. It's what it is, man. As long as you uh, and I can keep Ontario Alberta relations strong, we'll all be fine. It's, it's you and I holding the country holding together. Holding the country right? together, exactly. All right, all right so, so I will do vaccine mass mandates. I'll do uh, polyev and I'll do Bill 96. Okay, and then you want me to do um, slowly gun medley. And uh, I guess that's it, really. Slowly uh, gun medley. Yeah, okay, I'll do gun medley and slowly, and uh, you'll do. Fax mandate and building six, and you'll do Sheree PP. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that maybe a little bit later tonight or early tomorrow before I get them all done. We're not putting this thing out until Saturday anyway, because we just it's put it in our Ontario thing. Yeah. Gotta let the Ontario stuff breathe a little bit, man. Yes, ma'am. Uh, there's nothing contentious or spicy in this podcast. Should we put the podcast video out tonight and then do the written part later? I think we could probably do that. All right. We do not need to get this one, Lord. Um, I got nothing else. No, that's it. Go Lizzie, away. Leave me Lizzie, alone. I, I got my next. Oh next. You're on TV. I got my next thing coming minutes. in like six minutes. Yeah. Okay. We'll have fun. We'll do. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. All right, folks, we hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to this. This was the eighth episode of the Really Not That Experimental podcast. From the line for Matt Gurney on behalf of Jen Gerson. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't, and have a wonderful weekend.